Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Interviews, where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders, and I get to ask them about women in leadership and hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. And I am so thrilled today to be joined by Professor Laurie Weingart. Laurie, so good to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here, Melissa. Thanks. So I'm going to run through your bio just briefly. So just to give our audience a bit of an understanding of your incredible um, expertise. So Laurie is a professor of organisational behaviour and theory at the Tepper School of Business, Carnegie Mellon University. She served as Carnegie Mellon's interim provost, chief academic officer, and as a senior associate dean of education and director of the Accelerate Leadership Centre within the Tepper School. Laurie's also co-author of The No Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work. Cannot wait to get into that. And her research mm -hmm. examines collaboration, conflict and negotiation with a focus on how differences across people can both help and hinder effective problem solving and innovation. Her award-winning research has been covered by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and Business Insider and published in top management and psychology journals. And she lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Laurie, we are so lucky to have your voice added to our conversation. Thank you again. And before we get into our conversation, I'd just love to ask for anyone in our audience who hasn't come across you before, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and background and who you are as a human being? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to. So I am a professor in a university. Um, I've been at the same university for my whole career for over 30 years. Um, my background is in like a psychology type of background. So I study um, people at work. I study, as you know, you already mentioned, teamwork and collaboration and so on. Um, this wasn't a path that I planned necessarily. You know, it's one that I kind of fell into. Even as an undergraduate, I was an accounting major. That didn't last very long. I very quickly learned that there's this field of psychology that studies people at work. And I love psychology. And I, you know, I really found that whole aspect fascinating. And I had a mentor, you know, a, a woman who was a professor who was uh, helped, gave me the opportunity and to think about myself in this role that I had a, a kind of proclivity to do research and interest in it. And uh, so she kind of opened my eyes to this as a potential career. And I stepped right through. So um, didn't start planning to do this, but certainly went down that road and been doing it ever since. I think what's also very interesting about my background and my career is that in addition to being kind of your typical college professor who teaches and does research in a very applied area, I've also taken on leadership roles myself. Mm -hmm. So um, I've served as an associate dean, as you mentioned, I've served even as uh, in an interim capacity as the provost of the university, which is the chief academic officer. It's a very wide span of control and, and um, gave me a lot of learning opportunities. Uh, and I always kind of um, had a proclivity toward leadership. So I've led professor, professional associations and done a lot of what we call non-promotable work. Mm -hmm. But non-promotable work, these extra tasks, these extra um, jobs outside of my main job that brought me joy. I really, you know, was um, attracted to these types of positions. And so uh, that was is also really important to understanding my own personal leadership 
journey in that I was uh, always attracted to building institutions, to innovating, to trying out new things, to fixing things that are broken. Uh, and so when you put it all together, um, it's been a pretty fulfilling career so far uh, that's built upon, you know, the work that is core to my job and also these all these other tasks that I've done that um, were not required, but made a difference mm-hmm. and um, and really um, made me feel, yeah, helped me grow as an individual and as a leader. So Laurie, I had not um, I had not seen the book, and I was introduced to you by Professor Laura Cray, who I interviewed in one of my earlier series. And even the minute I saw the cover of the book, um, you know, the No Club, uh, putting an end to women's dead end work, I was just absolutely fascinated and intrigued. And I can't wait to get in and ask you questions about it because one of the things I think I said to you earlier was. Um, I mean, you guys are so clever, but this feels like a bit of a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle around something that I'm passionate about and around something that, you know, one of the reasons I started these interviews was why are there not more female CEOs? Mm -hmm. So I can't wait to kind of get into it. And maybe just by way of backdrop, I mean, there's a lot of research. We've, We've got big problems right now. You know, there's a lot of research. And if I think about the women in the workplace, um, McKinsey Report is one example. You know, women are leaving the workplace um, in far higher numbers than before and citing a couple of key reasons, um, burnout being one of them. Um, and the other one being lack of opportunity. And I feel like your book sits just so at the heart of that. So can we get into the kind of genesis of that book? Because I know it weaves so much into yours and the other author's personal stories, which is why I just love it so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you you mentioned this idea of burnout and burnout is what drove us to get together in the first place. Our, the, our, the, there were originally five of us, but the four of us are the authors who um, wrote this book. And we were burned out. And you know, Linda Babcock, um, who knew all of us, was really burned out. She had just written a book. She was getting a lot of requests to do talks, but this was years later after the book had come out. And she was having a hard time just saying no to not just those requests, but requests, uh, lots of requests for things that were not, you know, core to her job. Again, she was also a professor. And um so she felt overwhelmed and she she felt it was really hard to say no. So she uh, looked, invited the rest of us to get together at a local restaurant. So we got together uh, over a couple bottles of wine um, and started talking about this shared experience that we had about um, the burnout that we were experiencing and, the, and trying to just get everything done that needed to be done. The um, She called us the I Just Can't Say No Club. The first time she got us together, she sent us a doodle poll because she knew that we could not say no and we would not say no. Uh, And, you know, from there we met regularly. We met uh, over a period of 10, 12 years on a semi-regular basis, just trying to figure out how to manage the situation. But what we figured out pretty early on was that um, we could say no and we got better at saying no. I mean, certainly we coached each other. We sent each other emails. You know, we were, we backed each other up. We, uh, at our regular meetings, we would discuss what was going on in our work lives and how to um, navigate it. And, but what we realized 
after a few months is that we could say no to things, but the tasks that we were being asked to do would just get passed to another woman. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really solving the problem, you Mm -hmm. know, and we were worried about this, that we, that something bigger was going on beyond just the rest of us. And while it seems obvious now when you look back, but we didn't, what we had to come to realize is that, and what we realized by looking at research and, and doing our own research is that there was something bigger going on. It wasn't just that women couldn't say no, is that we were getting asked more than our male colleagues. And there was some dynamic going on that just made it difficult for us to turn it down. So that's really what the book is about. The book is about the fact that there's this dynamic that results in women being ending up doing all this dead-end work, what we call non-promotable tasks. And um, this interferes with the time that we need to do the work that advances our careers. So in the end, you know, we end up in the situation where, you know, you don't see as many women as CEOs. Why? Well, maybe this is holding them back. So, I mean, there's so many things just in that. I love in the book, there's so much practical sort of things in the book, including the examples of the emails that you would circulate amongst each other about how to say no. And you all provided different sort of advice and opinions on that, which was lovely as well. And I think an important part of being a leader, because it can be lonely being a leader to have that sort of support network. But the the non-promotable tasks, we should start there. And I think Mm -hmm. even in the opening uh, sort of chapter of the book, there was something that sort of hit me and it talked about one of the authors comparing the amount of time they got to dedicate to research compared to a male colleague. And she compared diary notes and saw that Mm -hmm. the main function of the a large function of what you guys do is research. Her male colleague was getting sort of six hours a day and she was managing one and having to do the rest outside. So can we just talk about what are non-promotable tasks and let's just kick off from there. Yeah, absolutely. So a non-promotable task is a task that is important to the organization. It's something that needs to get done, but doesn't advance the career of the person who's doing it. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's more than just office housework. So usually the first thing that comes to mind are things like, you know, organizing um, social events or taking notes at meeting or ordering, ordering lunch, things like that. And those are part, those are one type of non-promotable task, but there's much more to it, right? It's things we do that uh, support the organization, uh, like um, mentoring junior colleagues, which is really important, mm-hmm. uh, helping out with recruiting, organizing offsite events, things we do to help our colleagues, like backing them up when they need backup, if they can't attend a meeting or um, or maybe proofreading someone's documents. All, um, and then there are things that we do to support our peers. You know, we're, we provide a shoulder to lean on and so on. And men and women do these tasks. We all do non-promotable tasks. It's part of our job. It's it's expected, yes. right? But the question, But the problem here isn't whether you do them or not, but it's how much people are doing. Um, And so when we started looking at, you know, the promotability of work, what we realized is that non-promotable tasks are tasks that tend to be um, loosely tied or less directly tied to the organization's mission, Mm -hmm. right? So they're kind of two steps removed. You know, if you work in an accounting firm, or if you're a consultant, your billable hours matter. Yes. But if you're, you know, organizing an offsite, important, but let but less directly impactful. 
they also tend to be less visible. Your efforts are less visible. People don't know that you worked hard to make it happen. So maybe something you know you do behind the scenes. Um, that's all the help that we give or being the person who collates a slide deck instead of being the one up front presenting it. Yes. And, and then non-promotable tasks tend to not capitalize on the skills you were hired for, right? Your specialized skills. So um, if you're, let's talk about the accountants again, right? Yes. They were hired to do accounting and all the tasks related to that, but not necessarily be on a building committee or a welcome committee and so on. So when you look at those factors, in any job that you would do in any one day, a task is more promotable when those are higher and when and are less promotable when they're low. And so the research shared that there's, um, and we'll get into to why, um, which I think is important, but that it ended up being sort of an extra 200 hours a year or something. Yeah, it was fascinating. So, you know, when you, at, uh, we looked at one company. Yeah. Uh, and this was a consulting firm. And the beauty of looking at a consulting firm is that they track the hours, right? They track their billable time. And this consulting firm also tracked non-billable time in more detail. So they could look at way, the way their consultants were spending time and um, categorize them as more or less promotable. So we could get some good data on it. And what we found is that um, the women, regardless of seniority, so controlling for seniority, were engaged, the median woman was doing 200 more hours per year of non-promotable work. That's a month. Yes. Of extra work. That's a month, right? Of work that doesn't advance your career more than your male colleagues. They weren't doing zero, but the difference was, was significant. Um, okay. What's really, yeah. Why? Why? Uh, yeah. yeah. What's going on here? Well, what's going on? All right. So, you know, there's two things. Uh, and I think we have to look at the fuller picture. So it wasn't just that they were doing non-promote, more non-promotable work, but the junior consultants were also doing less promotable work. There was a trade-off, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the senior consultants were just working an extra month of time. Okay. So I want to point that out too. So there's a bunch of negative consequences that we can talk about be, uh, as a result of this inequity, um, right? There's burnout, there's um, issues of lack of career advancement, right? Because you just don't have the time to do the promotable work. So there's a lot of negative consequences for women and for their organizations. Uh, why does this happen? So, you know, there's three possibilities, right? One is, well, maybe women get asked more, right? Which is what we felt was going on in our personal experience. Maybe women just aren't good at saying no, like they get asked the same amount, or maybe women um, are volunteering. You know, maybe we just raise our hand when someone's looking for a volunteer. And what we found through our research is it happens to be all three. Okay. Okay. All three happen. Women are more likely to say yes. Women are more likely to be asked and women are more likely to volunteer. And what we were able to isolate in our research is that it really boils down to these shared norms and expectations. Everybody, men and women, expect women to do this type of work. Mm -hmm. And so um, they're asked more. And we can talk about, you know, reasons why they might get asked more they, or why, and why these expectations come to be. They, we, we I'll stop saying they, yeah. because we're all guilty of it. Yeah. Uh, we, we say yes when we're asked because we've internalized these expectations. It's not that women are better at doing this work. 
although practice makes perfect, so we get better at it, yes. but we're not inherently better at this type of work. Uh, it's not that we enjoy doing it more, you know, stay, spending the extra hours doing work that doesn't advance our careers. Um, it's that there are these norms and expectations that women are going to do it. And we found in our research that women were 50% more likely to be asked to do a non-promotable task than their male colleagues. Mm-hmm. It was a good strategy um, because they were also more likely to say yes. So, you know, if, if we're, say, 40 to 50% more likely to be asked, we're 50% more likely to say yes, and we're more likely to volunteer. And so that's, so. Very, that's very easy then for a time-stretched leader to go and ask the person who's going to say yes. Yeah, it's it's expedition, it's expedient, right? Because I'm going to ask the person that I know is going to say yes. I'm going to ask the person that has done it before because they will be able to be more efficient in getting it done. I'm going to ask the person who I think of, who comes to mind more easily. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes women who are more prototypical helpers, right? We think about the women as the helper, um, come to mind when you're looking for someone to do a non-promotable task. So for a lot of these psychological reasons and efficiency reasons, it happens. Can we weave your story in here? Because you know, it, there's a section that sort of focuses on you. And I think you were a little bit the odd one out in the group. Um, so let's just, let's jump into your story for a minute. Talk about you. Yeah. So, you know, in the backdrop of this, right, we had a group of women who were overrun with non-promotable tasks. We were all doing similar amounts. But Lisa, especially Lisa and Linda and Brenda, they were all pretty stressed out by it. Uh, in a negative way, you know, and it was um, causing either health concerns or questions of professional identity, all of those. And I wasn't having that same experience. Uh, And over the years, I would sit and I would listen, you know, to these things. And we, and I'd also bring my own stories in of I'm being asked to do this. I'm not sure if I should do this, you know, let's talk about it, get some help. So we were all benefiting from the club. Um, But I wasn't experiencing the same level of stress as my colleagues. And it wasn't until we sat down to write the book and I was forced to reflect on what my story was that I realized that I was kind of um, naturally putting these requests through a psychological filter that um, helped me make decisions. I was doing it kind of subconsciously. And because when I looked at the things that I was doing over time, again, these were tasks that helped me um, grow as a leader or brought me joy or were really tied to things that mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And I felt less guilty about shedding those things I didn't want to do in order to take on things that I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that, I think, reduced my stress level in terms of how I felt about the work that I was doing. I still needed to bring it under control. I was doing too much of it, but I wasn't having that same negative byproducts to this, or at least not to the same degree as as the rest of the club. And I think the reference to you was as the fixer, right? So that's the sort of role that you'd adopted. Right, you know, I, I study teamwork and conflict management, and I often, um, be, these are the te- the things that I got asked to do. There was a problem, you know, can Lori help solve it? I was a natural problem solver. And I think women in general, you know, we're really good at problem solving. Um, but 
I, I tended to take on that role. And as my colleagues did as well, but again, not to the same extent. So I did get lots of requests too, and I still do to help, you know, think through problems or solve them or help to resolve conflict. Um, and in many times, you know, I'm happy to help in those regard, in that regard. Um, but, but, you know, we, we, there's a saying that a ton of feathers still weighs a ton. Yes. So it still adds up, right? All these little asks, they still add up. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute, just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. I'm going to pause on your story for a minute because your research is so broad um, and you and I had a conversation around why why women can bring such strong skills into negotiation and, and leadership. Can get you to just quickly talk about that for us? Yeah. You know, there, there's good evidence that uh, women in, in on average yes. are, are very good problem solvers. Um, and some of the reasons that may be is that, you know, when, you know, when you come into a situation from a lower power position, right? So you don't have the formal authority to dictate a solution. You need to have influence using other means. Mm-hmm. And a very effective method of influence is negotiating, problem solving, taking the perspective of the other side, um, listening and integrating needs as opposed to just giving in, right? I'm not talking about just, you know, altruistically giving in. Mm-hmm. So women tend to develop this skill set because we, you know, historically come from a lower power position than, than men do. Uh, and we can leverage this in our leadership. Right. So this was I think it's a really important skill set that we have and one that, you know, today's leaders are owning, you know, female leaders are owning and saying, you know, I can come into this and really um, see all sides of the problem. And while I still keep my own goals in mind and what I need to accomplish, I also can both empower um, others and all and integrate the different perspectives. And I will say personally, you know, this served me very well in my own leadership roles really useful, uh, especially when I came in in an interim capacity where you come in, you know, one down a little bit and I needed to problem solve um, from, you know, a somewhat low, even though you'd think, oh, she's in this very, you know, high status, high power position in an interim capacity. I had to bring people along with me in a way that um, very quickly in a way that maybe someone who was permanent in the position would not have to do to the same extent. The difference between potentially that whole influence versus you've got the title. Um, right, yeah. exactly. Okay. And there's a lot of you know literature and research and experience, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, is that if you can bring people along with you in making a decision, it's much like more likely to stick. And really successful people in high um, uh, impact roles know this and do this very well. And they also know when they, when they have to make the, a hard decision, you know, as well. There's so many things, um, if I just bring us back to the book again, and thank you for sharing that. There's so many things in the book that, you know, I think um, 
one of the things I took away from it is the book's not at all saying to people stop doing this, stop doing this work. You know, it's so it, important. Yeah, I think it's helping people become aware um, of it. I think it's important for leaders. There's so much leaders can take out of this in terms of you know how is work being allocated and what are the right. impacts that's having. Um, so it's not saying stop doing it. But it feels to me like it's saying become a lot more intentional about the what. And I took that out of your chapter that I think there's there always appeared to be some intention associated with it, maybe. Absolutely. You know, the the is you know, as I mentioned earlier, everybody does non-promotable tasks and there are expectations for our for doing that, for taking on work, for helping one another. And the message is not to stop helping your colleagues, mm-hmm. right? The message is to, um, for women to navigate the situation so that they're not doing an extraordinary amount in comparison to their colleagues. Mm-hmm. So they're not bearing a burden um, or they're not being overburdened, right? And, and I think that... Um, we do need to be intentional and proactive about uh, paying attention to our NPT workload, to benchmarking it against successful people in the organization, men and women, and working with our managers and our bosses to ensure that we're, we're, being, we're able to carve out the time we need to do the work that matters to our careers and to our institutions mm-hmm. and not have our being overwhelmed by non-promotable work that keeps getting um, that keeps getting laid on top of um, all the work you're doing. Another fascinating thing was in the research around the fact that you did the sort of control groups and found that in an all-female group, mm-hmm. um, you oh, know, yeah. we were we were less inclined to potentially yeah. you know volunteer, volunteer, which I think yeah. was really important in highlighting the sort of societal expectation part of this. That's right. And, and if I can just build on that for a second, the um, the evidence that women volunteer more than men is when they're in mixed sex groups. So we have men and women and someone's got to raise their hand. Yes. But, you know, you, you mentioned that, um, which we found in our research, is that when you have all women in a group or all men in a group, everyone does the same thing. They look around and they they have these expectations that women are the volunteers. So if you if it's based on volunteers, and this is what happened, the men look around in an all male group. They said there's no women here. Yeah. So I guess I'm going to have to step up a little earlier. I'm going to take one for the team because this is the team. Mm-hmm. And they raise their rate of volunteering. The women do the same thing. We look around and we say, oh, there's other women in the group. There's all women. So I don't have to overcompensate. I can take my turn and lo and behold, the volunteering rates converged, right? To the same level. So it really does point out this set that we where our expectations of what other people will do, which are driven by these gender-based norms are driving this difference. Yeah. So saying no then. (laughs) So tell, tell me about some of the saying no. Yeah, right. So knowing that this is driven by expectations means that we can't just tell women to just say no. Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to work because when you say no and you're expected to say yes, 
you're violating a norm, you're violating an expectation, and there's a risk of backlash. Yes. So yeah, there's certainly things that we can say no to, and maybe because we're afraid of what might happen, or we feel guilty, we're saying yes, and we want to be intentional about that, and really thoughtful and strategic. Who can I say no to? Who can't I say no to? Where? What can I pass on? What are the repercussions in any given situation? But once you're past that initial assessment, um, then the question is how to say no and how to um, avoid the potential backlash that can occur because of this norm expectation uh, violation. Backlash. Yeah, by backlash, we're talking about things. So, you know, not a team player, um, you know, being being difficult. Um, you know, it's there the sorts of backlashes that are occurring. That type of backlash, right? Being viewed negatively, not, not a team player, not um, not a contributor. Yeah. Uh, and because men aren't expected to say yes, when they say no, they're not judged as negatively as when women say no. In fact, there's research that shows that men, uh, when there's an opportunity to volunteer, they and they don't, they're not viewed negatively. But when a woman doesn't step up, she is viewed negatively. On the flip side, when men then do step up and volunteer, they're viewed as, you know, what a great guy, what a hero. But when women do the same thing, there's they're just viewed as, you know, this is this is what's expected. So they don't get any bump, any positive bump in how they're viewed. So we know we're operating in this environment. So when we say no, we, you know, this is when the problem solving helps. Right. So the goal is to be able to um, say yes to yourself first. Yes. What are my constraints? What are what are all the things that I'm working on? What, are, what is my current promotable workload and non-promotable workload? And then saying no to the request if if you don't have the bandwidth for it or it's not your turn, but then helping the other side to problem solve the situation. Maybe you'll identify somebody else who can do the task for you who would benefit from it because they hadn't done it before or could meet new people. Or maybe there's a staff member who is better suited to take it on than you, who could be part of their job. You know, so we can start problem solving. Or maybe we can say no to the ask as presented, but yes to a part of it, mm -hmm. right? So maybe there's a portion of it that you can easily do, or maybe there's some resource support you can get, or maybe there's a timeline that you can, um, you know, put a clear end date to, or maybe there's someone who can do it with you this time so they can take it over next time. So being creative and coming up with solutions uh, with your no is um, a very, very effective technique. Because when people come to ask you for help, they have a problem that needs to be solved. I, um, I got a real giggle out of, there's an example in the book about a journalist who, um, who created a second email account to a post. <laughs> to pose as her own assistant to say no. You must have come across some fascinating examples like that of people being creative about saying no. Absolutely. And all the different types of reasons that people gave. Um, and we tried to get creative too and had some that backfired on us. You know, we, so the example you gave was, you know, the, she had an, she made a second email account and that posed as her assistant and responded to requests saying, I'm sorry, but, you know, so-and-so is unavailable, like, you know, to, to, uh, 
do whatever the, the ask was. So that was that was a way to kind of push the no off onto someone else and attribute it not to yourself, but to some other, um, you know, someone who's protecting your time. Uh, we tried things like uh, saying, well, I'm really so busy. I don't have the time. I don't have the, the bandwidth. <laughs> the problem was we would, we got a response email. I think this happened to Linda. She got an email response saying, oh, no problem. I can wait <laughs> uh, and say two months from now, you know, and of course, two months from now, your calendar looks really open. Yes. But the, but of course, you're going to be just as busy then as you are now. Yes. So we need to, um, yeah. So we had a lot of learning experiences along the way that we tried to communicate in the book as well. So others don't fall prey. So I would love to ask you, what are three clear things that you think organizations, and it's really interesting when we use the word organizations, because they're just a group of leaders. So what can what can a leader do to, um, now that they're aware of this, what can a leader do to address it? Yeah, so, like there are two sets of solutions, right? One set of solutions are what managers can do within their work unit, right? That are relatively low cost. And the first piece of advice, stop asking for volunteers, mm. right? It, it's very natural for us to ask for volunteers because we think the person who's going to volunteer is the person who wants to do it. Yes. But we know from our research that women feel pressure to volunteer, right? And that has not, not because they want to do the task, but because they feel like they have to. Mm. So if we stop asking for volunteers, we avoid that dynamic. Of course, then you have to replace it with another method. How do you hand out the non-promotable tasks? You can do simple things like taking turns or um, or asking for, um, you know, or, or just tracking who's done what across a broader set of tasks. Or you can, you know, be even more intentional and start tracking all of the non-promotable tasks that your co your subordinates are doing and and be more strategic about how you hand out tasks mm -hmm. who would be a good fit for this whose turn is it you know and thinking about the broader picture it takes more work but it pays off so it's how you you know reallocate and allocate non-promotable tasks and paying attention to it can i add one in there because it's just occurring to me as you're saying this that you know, I spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, I really would encourage women to be very clear around and intentional about their careers and ask for what they want. And if I link that to you, you got some real passion and joy out of some of your non-promotable tasks mm -hmm. because they were things you had a deep passionate about. You know, should leaders be also, I would be saying, engaging in conversations around what what are the areas you're passionate about so I can connect you Absolutely. to yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a great story I have around that happened to me when I was um, invited to serve on a university committee that I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. It was about the student experience and how to um, reduce the stress culture on campus. Mm -hmm. And it was something I cared about and something I wanted to spend time. But I was also on a university committee that um, was looking what that was uh, pulling data together for reaccreditation. Universities have to go through that as well. And while that was a very important task, I was less passionate about it. Um, I went to my boss, the dean, to talk about it. And he was very helpful in helping me um, 
communicate with the central administration to roll off of the committee I didn't want to be on or was less passionate about in order to be on the committee that I was. And I could not have done that without leadership, without the support of leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and, and leaders have such an important role to play in mentoring and, and working with their subordinates to uh, think about what's the best way for them to grow as an individual and are there what we call indirectly promotable tasks that they can do that will help them develop their network develop leadership skill sets um, that will be worth the time and help them as an individual and again you know the once and once you get that benefit out of that network then you move on to develop a network in another place so you know this is a portfolio of non-promotable tasks that rotates Mm -hmm. so you can develop yourself over time and then is there a broader kind of set of organizational yes. uh, things we can do? What would they be? Yeah, so now we need to think about the systems, right? We need to think about what we reward and um, and how non-promotable tasks fit in. So, you know, while you may not get promoted for a non-promotable task, maybe yes. by definition, Everybody needs to do their fair share. And so setting expectations about minimum and maximum, what's the range of expectations? And then monitoring it in some way to ensure that people are meeting the minimum and not exceeding the maximum. And if they do exceed the maximum because they're doing something that is passionate for them, that's really important to their personal mission, how do we recognize that in our reward system? And there are organizations that do a good job of tracking um, these activities that support the culture of the organization. And and most organizations, I I, um, I think this came out of the McKinsey report, I'm not sure, but um, said that about 70% of organizations say that they value culture enhancing activities, but only about 30% of them actually reward it. Yes, absolutely. So there's an opportunity there. Uh, we can also think about what's promotable and what's not promotable um, and are they in the right buckets? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you really do value, say, DEI, for example, and belongingness, um, how do we reward it? Should mm-hmm. it be promotable and how are we going to track that? Uh, and then, of course, in organizations, we can look at our job design. So do we have the tasks aligned with the right, right roles? And do we want to do some shifting around? And that often happens to happen at higher levels of the organization as well. Mm. Okay. So um, we could talk for hours about this. Um, I strongly encourage anyone listening to this to read this book. I just think it is a critical piece, as I said earlier, of the jigsaw puzzle. Laurie, um, I've got a million questions I didn't get to. Um but I did, um, I've been using chat GPT a little bit recently. It might be controversial in the academic sector uh, at this point in time. but Thinking I, quite um, a bit about it these <laughs> days, absolutely. But I did ask it to, um, to give me three words to describe you. And okay. the three words that came back were innovative, analytical and engaging and I think that sums you up so beautifully for our chat today. How do you feel about those three words? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I think it's great. You know, it's really about this balance between trying to um, 
get at the root of the problem and make a difference. Amazing. So can I finish up with the final question that I ask everybody, Laurie, and that is from your perspective, what is brave feminine leadership and do you think it needs to change? You know, it relates to something I talked about earlier, which is women are really strong problem solvings. We solvers, we come in with the skill set. And I think we need to own it. We need to own our skills at influencing others, at bringing others into the fold, and also being able to take a decision when need be. The, uh, you know, there's this tendency to put a high value on prototypical male attributes and leadership and say, well, this is what women should be doing. And we bring something unique to the table. So giving ourselves the space to do that and our organizations giving us the space to demonstrate the value add of that approach is key. And I think organizations are starting to talk the talk Mm -hmm. in that domain. I don't know if they're quite walking the walk yet. Some places are, but I think there's a great opportunity there. Thank you so much for adding your voice to our conversation, Laurie. It's been a very rich and valuable conversation. My pleasure, Melissa. I really appreciate the opportunity. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.